Welcome to Best in Show, the podcast that looks at the best episode of each TV series I own in its entirety, as determined by IMDb voters. This time around, we are looking at Murder, She Wrote, with guest hosts Don and Nick Simonson. Hello. What's going on? Not much. Thanks for joining us here. Thanks for having us. Watch a new show. It's always a good time. All right. So I believe this is actually the podcast debut for both of our guests this week. Yes, it is. First time. Seems fun. All right. So this week, the emphasis with Murder, She Wrote is on, as we said, the best episode is voted by IMDb users, which is season seven, episode 14. Murder, She Wrote originally lasted 11 seasons plus four made-for-TV movies after that, with 264 episodes in the series proper. I didn't realize there was four movies. So the series was actually created, or co-created, by Peter S. Fisher, who has a few IMDb user credits to his name. So Murder, She Wrote is just his latest creation. He also was credited as creator on The Law and Harry McGraw, on Blake's Magic, on The Eddie Capra Mysteries, and has a number of writing credits on other shows. Now, a lot of those shows that he's got writing credits on were those created by Richard Levinson and William Link. They're a writing team, or at least they were until Levinson's untimely demise at age 52 in 1987. Well, that will end that, then. Probably their best-known creation is Columbo. But in addition to Columbo and Murder, She Wrote, they also co-created Blake's Magic with Peter S. Fisher, as well as Stone, TV adaptation of Ellery Queen from 1977, and Mannix, which was another detective series that lasted 194 episodes. So that's, by episode count... Mannix is probably their second most popular creation after Murder, She Wrote. Now, Link kept working after Levinson passed away. So he created the Cosby Mysteries, which lasted for 18 episodes, and a series called Probe, which I've never heard of, but it's here on his credits. It lasted a whole seven episodes. And what was that about? I've never heard of that before at all. I'm not sure, and there doesn't really seem to be a major theme in the episode titles here. Black cats don't walk under ladders, do they? Metamorphic anthropoidic prototype over you. Now you see it. Plan 10 from outer space. As soon as you said probe, I assumed it had to do with aliens. I'm not quite seeing the theme of these, but... Yeah, computer logic untouched by human hands, so definitely seems like it's a sci-fi show of some kind. I'll have to check that out sometime. Yeah. The uh, plot outline on the IMDb says it's an eccentric scientific prodigy and his secretary investigate mysteries. Pre-X-Files almost. Yep, by about five years. Yep. Starring Parker Stevenson, who's best known to some of us as playing Frank Hardy in the 1970s Hardy Boys adaptation. Never watched that one. So those are the credits for Levinson and Link. This particular episode originally aired February 10th, 1991. It was written by Lynn Kelsey, who also wrote for The Scarecrow and Mrs. King. She wrote 15 of those 88-ish episodes, if I'm remembering wow. correctly. As well as The Paper Chase, Private Benjamin. Classic. And the director of this episode was Walter Groman, who's got 84 director credits to his name. The last credits to his name are episodes of Murder, She Wrote from 1996. But 
I'm also seeing episodes of Columbo, seen from a crime, V, Barnaby Jones, he directed 49 episodes of, Streets of San Francisco. So generally speaking, this is a team, oh, even the original Fugitive, but this feels like a creative team that have a lot of experience with mystery series. A lot of mystery. Yeah, seeing a lot of mystery and police shows on these. With the dabbing in sci-fi. Yep. So now the, the basic premise behind Murder, She Wrote. Angela Lansbury plays Jessica Fletcher, a retired English teacher who's turned to writing for her retirement. Very popular mystery writer who tends to get involved in solving the mysteries herself. Like a lot of 80s shows, not a lot of continuity. So you could watch an episode, miss a couple seasons, come back and watch another episode and not feel like you've missed anything. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. Which has its benefits, but... Yeah, it, it was the, the, the standard in the 80s to do shows that way. It really helps me with this, though, because I watched it if I was missing anything from farther back. Yeah. Yeah, and that was the idea. So there's really... There's a double-edged sword to that. On the one hand, if it's very episodic, People can just pick it up and start watching at any time. But on the other hand, if it's heavily serialized, it's harder for new readers or new viewers to get involved. But once you've got an established viewership, they don't tend to go anywhere and it turns into appointment television. Yeah. So that's where we're seeing a big shift to these days. And a lot of people are crediting Netflix with that. Oh, yeah. Because with the popularity of Netflix, it is now reasonable to assume that people are watching every episode in sequence. Binge. Netflix binging. Yeah, you you don't see a lot of people jumping around in Netflix to watch random episodes. Now, because it was Angela Lansbury, if we go back to hers, she's got 108 credits as an actress. Most recently, the upcoming... Oh, sorry. This is being recorded very early. Most recently, at the time of this recording, Mary Poppins Returns as the Balloon Lady, which would have been released about three years ago, her credits go back to 1944 as Nancy in, I believe it would have been the second Gaslight. Mm-hmm. What I like about her, though, is she's not she's an actress that's kind of stood the test of time, but hasn't had to reinvent herself. Almost, because you know how Madonna has had to reinvent herself and gets outlandish and crazy. She hasn't had to do that. Yeah, she just... Angela Lansbury built her career on having the talent to be in that career. Yeah. She can come in... And it's not like some people who, you know, they've got some talent, but they're also riding on their looks. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, what we saw of Angela Lansbury today was Angela Lansbury in her late 60s. But if you go back to the original Manchurian Candidate, right, you see she actually was fairly attractive as a youth. She was beautiful. She was very beautiful. And yet she, at no time did it feel like she was depending on that. I'm sure we can all name actors and actresses who (laughs) get a lot of work in the 20s and 30s and are very attractive. But once they start to age out of their, their sex appeal, they're just never heard from again. Yeah. I think some actors and actresses too, especially women. If they don't have that sex appeal, they don't want to take on roles. They don't want to accept roles that are their age, that shows them at their age. Yeah, or even it's getting harder and harder because there's still more than enough sexism in Hollywood to make it difficult to get roles if you don't have the sex appeal 
Oh, yeah. For, for both genders, but I think it's more pronounced for the female gender. But from what I know of Angela Lansbury, I don't think she's ever taken on roles that were sexual, per se. I don't think she ever <laughs> was in anything that I can remember or know of that was based on mm-hmm. anything. Yeah. Yeah, I can't think of any role I've seen her in where the point of the role was to be eye candy or just... Mm-hmm. Do- there was always quality or substance to her. Yeah. And again, the original Manchurian Candidate is another prime example of that. Yes. Where she's the manipulative individual in that. So I don't know if you guys have seen that, but... Not for a long, long I have time. A long, long time ago. But one of the other advantages to having Angela Lansbury as... I mean, she was apparently very involved on sort of the production side and had a lot of influence over the tone of the show and the kind of content and the kind of mysteries they had. And as we we could probably get into, but some of the dialogue here is very carefully chosen. So it's saying these two are having a thing, not while they're having an affair or she's cheating on him or anything like that. It was carefully chosen dialogue. But having someone in there who's got decades of history in the industry with her there's no shortage of high-quality guest stars oh, yeah. in Murder, She Wrote at any time. She had friends in all the right places. So the guest star that's probably most recognizable to my generation, at least, is Max Bear, or Max Bear Jr. He's usually just credited as Max Bear because his dad was a heavyweight boxer and not an actor. He's probably best known as Jethro Bodine in the original Beverly Hillbillies sitcom. But this is his second appearance on Murder, She Wrote. As another character, he would play someone completely different the prior season. I wouldn't have recognized him from being Jethro. His voice and everything was very different. To some, and a lot of it's because he wasn't trying to play the naive boy, mm-hmm. right? He wasn't getting goofy. It's when he was playing Jethro, he was putting on a voice. Fair enough. So I found him more recognizable, more because my first introduction to him was in a, like a Beverly Hillbillies reunion special so many years after. So that would have been just a few years before this. But here he's also, as we commented while we were watching it, trying very hard to look young. Very, the hair color. Yeah, it's, it was actually character appropriate because he was, the actor was 54 when they filmed this. But I think the character he was playing is the kind of character who would do a cheap do-it-yourself dye job to still look young <laughs> for the pretense. One of those men's box colors. Yeah, because that, that is what his hair is dyed with. And, I mean, we're talking Hollywood on what was a very popular show in season 7 out of 11. They could certainly afford some decent hair dye. And I think to get in that episode, the hairdressers went to the, the ladies group there. They all had the mm-hmm. prim proper hairspray shellacked hair. Yeah, and that's what, <laughs> that's what I'm thinking. I think they, they, it looks like a cheap hair job, but I think they made a conscious choice to do his hair that way for his character. Looks yeah, it's like you know, supposed to be black, but it's kind of brown in the fringes, and it's didn't quite get all the mustache. Just for men. That's yeah. yeah, but as Don mentioned, there's uh, a number of female characters in this. The basic plot of the episode titled Who Killed J.B. Fletcher is that someone is arrested under the name Jessica Fletcher. Jessica hears it reported on the news, goes to investigate, and the one who was arrested in her name also ends up murdered, and it's reported that Jessica has died. As it turns out, she's just a fan who had a fake ID that said she was Jessica Fletcher and was part of a whole group of fans who all have these fake IDs 
And eventually, because of the can of worms that Marge opened as Jessica Fletcher, in her attempt to investigate a fraud at the dog show, they end up discovering and solving a murder. Two. That's two murders. Right. That's correct. Yeah, two murders. And that group of women who are part of that, that mystery fan club, these are people that Angela Lansbury has worked with before, has known for years. So we've got Janet Blair, who's best known for Burn Witch Burn, Fabulous Dorsey's Tonight and Every Night, and My Sister Ellen. She's got 56 acting credits to her name. This was actually her last acting role. Prior to this, there was Love Boat, Fantasy Island, and, you know, which are two of the other shows that are known for, you know, almost like a retirement home for actors. Definitely the Love Boat. But if we go back through her filmography, we see a lot going all the way back to 1941. Betty Garrett, who was sort of the one in charge, is probably known as Edna from Laverne and Shirley. She was Irene on All in the Family. She was in Take Me Out to the Ball Game with Frank Sinatra, Esther Williams, and Gene Kelly. Also worked with Kelly Sinatra and Ann Miller in On the Town, where she had third billing as the top-billed female right after Kelly and Sinatra. She only had 33 credits, but there's some strong She was strong on Laverne and Shirley for a while, though. I remember her. She was 97 episodes. So I believe she was the landlady. So she's probably there for all but the last season when they moved. I thought she worked in the pizza place. Could be. I actually, I'm not familiar enough with Laverne and Shirley. So I could very well be wrong about that. But her credits go back to 1948. And then another member of that group is Terry Moore, who is best known for Mighty Joe Young, Comeback Little Sheba, Beneath the Twelve Mile Reef, and Peyton Place. So Peyton Place was an Oscar nominee in 1957. Mighty Joe Young was known to monster fans. It was an attempt to sort of recreate King Kong, but on a cheaper budget. So it was, you know, only a 10 or 12 foot ape rather than the King Kong size ape. Yeah. But she's got 100 credits to her name, some of which are filming at the time of this recording. So she is busy. Yeah, she is busy and still working at, let's see, born in January 1929. And she's still working. She's almost 90 and still working. What is she working on right now? Right now she's working on Merrily, which is filming. Wow. With top billing and just scrolling down the IMDb list, she's also the only name that I recognize here. And then another actor in there is Lyman Ward. I would say he's easily best known for playing Ferris Bueller's father. Oh my goodness. Uh, but he That's was a classic right there. Yeah. Uh, he's also been in Independence Day, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Sleepwalkers. There's another guy with 100 credits to his name. At the time of this recording, the most recent is from a couple of years ago in 2015. But again, he was born in 1941, so he's now in his 70s. Wow. Did a lot of work, like, high. High-end horror movies. He did, yeah. Some of these, he did an episode of Monk. Looks like he was in 13 episodes of First Monday, TV series from 2002. This is his first of three appearances on Murder, She Wrote, as three different characters. He was in the Weird Science TV series, an episode of Melrose Place, an episode of Street Eagle. 
Dallas, Silver Spoons, Heart to Heart, Kojak. So his career goes back to 1971 with an episode of Bonanza. Oh my goodness. <laughs> so that's one of the things I like about Murder, She Wrote, especially compared to other detective shows in the 70s and 80s, they will often have that high-profile celebrity guest, and they're the killer. I mean, there's one episode of Banachek where I knew Dick Van Patten was the killer because it's Dick Van Patten surrounded by a bunch of people I don't know. <laughs> when Banachek solves it at the end, he solves it by revealing something he knew two minutes in the episode that the audience learns about as he's solving the case at the end. You can't do that with Murder, She Wrote, because everybody is somebody. Yeah. Everybody's a suspect. Yeah, when she's got five or six celebrities per episode, you can't say, oh, that's the killer because he or she is the celebrity. I agree. You never know. So that's, yeah, Murder, She Wrote was one of the longest-running detective series on TV. The thing I like about Murder, She Wrote is sometimes just when you think you have it figured out, and you're like, oh, that's who it is, it's not. It is, and they did the red herrings well. I mean, one of the suspects in here, a character named Rick, they establish he's got a motive to be involved, but then as they dig through it, they find out, no, he's got an airtight alibi. Mm-hmm. And he wasn't necessarily aware of the insurance policy that they considered motive. Wrong place, wrong time. One thing I really did like about this, though, is like from the beginning, I wasn't like, okay, that person did it. Whereas wait until the end of the episode. I legitimately did not know who did it until the last five minutes. And I was really trying Mm -hmm. to figure it out. Yeah, that is one thing that Murder, She Wrote did very well. Which is, it's the opposite of Levinson and Link's Columbo collaborations. But I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with Columbo. But I watched it, but I can't top of my head. Yeah. Columbo is the one that starts... Like Columbo doesn't appear in the first act of the film. Act one is where we watch the killer kill the victim and understand why and how they did it and how they're covering their tracks. It's a very much a law and order type setup. Yeah, it's not a whodunit, it's how's he going to prove it. Yeah. So act two is where Columbo shows up and gets completely underestimated because of the way he carries himself. So the killer figures, oh, it's a game of cat and mouse and tries to help Columbo come to the wrong conclusion Mm -hmm. to get away with it. And then usually the shift between Act 2 and Act 3 is where Columbo asks a question that makes the killer realize, oh, this is a game of cat and mouse, but I'm the mouse. And he knows exactly what's going on. Another good one from that time is Matlock. That was another good one I used to watch. It is. That one ran nine seasons, so close, but not quite to the Murder, She Wrote levels. That was another pre- Mm -hmm. SU uh, Law and Order with the courtrooms. It was Matt Walk. It was, yeah. yeah. And then there was an episode series before that. It was like Fat. Jake and the Fat Man? Nope. Okay. He has white, white beard and. Okay. I'll have to look it up. It's going to bug me. But it was another courtroom. Oh, Perry Mason? Yes. Okay. So I didn't twig right away because my watch threw in that as season one when he's still fairly trim. <laughs> Yeah, he gets larger through the years. He does. Definitely much larger than he was in the American release of Godzilla. (laughs) Or Rear Window. Fantastic movie. But anyway. So getting into the statistics of this show. As we said, 274 episodes. Collating the IMDb voting results. The mean average of the episodes is 7.73. Median and mode are both 7.7. So it's pretty consistent. It's actually a fairly low center deviation of about 0.36. So about five or about 83% of the series gets a 
an IMDb score of 7.4 or higher. The lowest rated episode was Season 7, Episode 18, where Have You Gone Billy Boy with a 6.7 out of 10. This one scored 8.7 out of 10 to be the number one series. Have you watched that worst episode? Not recently. I haven't watched it since I picked up the DVDs, but I would have to sit down and watch it again to know if I saw it in the original broadcast or not. Because as long-time listeners of the series could probably tell just by what's on it, I watched a lot of 1980s detective shows. It'd be interesting to see what makes it stand out as the worst versus this is the best. Yeah. I think one of the reasons this one is the best is because it's got the quality mysteries that they usually have on the show. Yeah. I mean, Murder, Sure was very good for really plausible red herrings. Right. And it wasn't like some other shows where, you know, they they try to play up the detective, make the detective look brilliant by surrounding him with idiots. There's intelligent people here. Even when she's sitting down with the the members of the fan club, it's a fan club member who points out that, well, whoever dumped this body in the woods must have had an accomplice yeah. because they left the truck behind and needed a way to get back into town. So the accomplice must have driven them back. I think as well there was a bit of a humor to it too because in the fan club they were a bit funny. Massive picture in a room. And- they were, yeah, it, it's a deviation from the status quo. Yeah. <laughs> that, so it was something different and that humor to it. Yeah, it, it's actually a pretty fun episode on top of the normal mystery. So, you know, we've got moments where Jessica Fletcher is trying to prove who she is to a sheriff who's seen another ID that says Jessica Fletcher. Jessica doesn't drive, so she comes back with a paperback purchased for the yeah. local drugstore with the about the author picture going, see, it's really me. Or everyone then nationally thinks she's dead. Yeah. And her bank card and everything starts being cancelled. Yeah, no credit cards. Her credit card at the time, her phone card. Yeah. She's you know trying to reassure Seth that, yes, she's good for the money. Please just wire it to me because I wasn't expecting to be here this long. The only thing that always makes me laugh about Murder, She Wrote, along with a couple other shows like this, is you don't want to be her friend because everyone around her dies. Somebody's always getting <laughs> killed around her. There's always something. I think the only major friend character she had who disappears without dying is probably Tom Bosley's character as the sheriff. Yeah. Uh, most people would know... Tom Bosley as the dad from Happy Days. He was the local sheriff for the first couple seasons. And if rumors are true, he was written off because he was pushing hard for a romantic relationship between his character and Jessica Fletcher. And Angela Lansbury and the producers were saying, that's not what the show is. It's not going to happen. (laughs) I honestly always thought it would have been between her and Seth. If something was going to happen, I would agree. Yeah, I didn't get chemistry in both directions between Lansbury and Bosley. No. I, I, I think... That was a one-way. Yeah, I think Bosley saw his childhood crush right there and figured, hey! <laughs> but, she uh, doesn't have anything to do with it. No, and apparently Bosley is not the greatest person to work with in general, so... I, I like Murder, She Wrote, too, because compared to a lot of programs nowadays, there's no... There's always somebody being murdered, but there's not the grisly and the gore that there is in detective shows now. Yeah, I mean, as we said, two people died in this episode. We only saw one body. Or actually, no, in the end, three people died. And only a little bit of blood. Yeah. So, Marge, the last time we see Marge, it's her panicked reaction at the killer who sees her. And then we find out she's dead through newspapers. We 
don't even know what Simon looks like. He was never cast. He's dead before the episode opens. We don't see his body. We hear about the coroner's report, and we see sort of like a first-person perspective of the killer with bloody fingers coming up the stairs, but we don't see the body. And then the third one to die was choked to death, and we do see her on the bed with bruises on her neck, but... And only a little bit of blood on the light bulb. Yeah. So it, it's minimal gore, just enough to make sure the, the viewers know what's happening, and that's it. That's so from a generation like you, Nicholas, who are used to the gore on TV, what do you think of not seeing? I don't know. That's, that's hard. It's, it's, like, it's like a totally two-way street, because you like to say the gore, and like it like excites you kind of thing. At the same time, the one thing I really liked about this one, though, is that it didn't just focus focus on the gore like CSI or something, where it's like blood here, guns this. It was like, okay, this person's dead, let's move on and solve like the mystery in quotations, I guess, and like see what's happening. So it's a two-way street, but I definitely like this is something different, because everything you watch these days is all about the gore, how they died, reenacting it. This is like, okay, they're dead, let's go find the mystery. Yeah, I mean, when it comes to Murray Shirot, I mean, most of the dead bodies you see... It's, you know, maybe a couple of feet on the ground sticking up from behind furniture, and then you cut to the reactions of the people seeing it. Yeah, exactly. So you, you don't see the corpse. You see people going, oh, he's dead, or she's dead. And all we saw was, you know, the heel of the shoe that might be warming <laughs> away that gives Angela Lansbury a clue. Yeah. yeah. So I actually remember there is one episode where it's the fact that the soles didn't match on the two shoes was a big tip-off for her. It's usually a good thing, I guess, that her shoes matching it. It is. And for the most part... It's a fair mystery, meaning the audience, as viewers, I mean, there was one moment where Angela notices something, or sorry, Jessica notices something in the coroner's report, and the audience doesn't find out what she's noticed until about five minutes later, but you know, it, it doesn't feel like they're really withholding information to keep you from solving it. It was a piece along the way. Yeah. It's a very good point, actually, yeah, because it was just a mystery throughout for everyone, not just for the audience watching. Exactly. It's uh, Murder, She Wrote and actually Psych are probably the two detective shows I could think of where consistently, if you're paying attention, trying to solve it while you're watching, the viewer and the detective can reach the same conclusion at the same time because that's when you get the information you need. Yeah. What about for you, because your your generation, like seeing like the, I guess you'd say bad props and guns and effects. The only thing that really stood out during that was um, Marge's reaction when the killer came in. She's just kind of like, like her mouth just opened. I was like, like, is there nothing no better acting than that? But other than that, there really wasn't like the blood and the light bulb looks how it probably would look today. And there really wasn't anything else that like stood out as like that could have been better. But the acting, I guess, that was kind of just of the period that was made. But nothing else really stood out. Maybe in other episodes, but with this episode, nothing really jumped out that could have been better. Like props, I guess you could say. Yeah, and there's some things that don't age well. I mean, there's one, for the most part, this looks like it was shot on film. But there's one sequence when she first finds the the fan club. That stood out to me. Yeah, yeah the, the, there's a camcorder shot where yes. they're following her in. And that one wasn't, we can see now, especially watching it on video or on DVD, most of the episode was on film, which had a higher resolution than TVs at the time. So they had to downgrade it. It translates well to DVD, but then for that camcorder shot, the cameras just didn't fit, so they had a shoulder-mounted video in the old TV resolution. So for us, there's just this 15-second chunk in the middle of the DVD where 
the color palette gets blanched out. The resolution goes down. Yeah. I was really confused when I saw that. It was like, hey, decent quality. And I was like, and someone brought out like a little camera and started videotaping. <laughs> yeah, there's, it, it looks like the, that 10 or 15 second shot was taken with a shoulder mounted camcorder. Yeah. Thanks. Probably because they were filming on location in an actual house and couldn't pull a wall out to put the proper camera there. Yeah. Interesting. That's one thing I noticed about, I remember about Murder, She Wrote is in today's TV shows, you see a lot of outside scenes, like out in the streets and whatnot. You don't see that Murder, She Wrote, except for the small towns. You see you see the street scenes there, but and they're very contained. And then when they're looking yeah. for the blood, you see the, the dirt patch, but that could have been anywhere, right? So. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Those the the establishing shots they're called that are there just to tell you where you are. Murder she wrote only seems to use if they're returning to the same location. Yeah. So like outside the McClay home, where they come back two or three times, you get the shot with the truck there that tipped off Marge, and then a shot later at the funeral with all the cars, and then another establishing shot later where the police vehicle's waiting because the sheriff's ready to say, you know what, Jessica, you may be onto something. Instead of butting out, let's work together. Mm-hmm. Right. So it. And in all of those establishing shots, it's doing a double purpose. It's telling you, okay, we're back at this home, but there's something to observe in every one. Right? There's the truck the first time. There's the sheriff. There's the mourners. The last time it was Rick coming out of the driveway on his motorcycle. So it, they don't waste any time here. No, they don't, because even after Simon's death, it was the next day they were having the funeral. <laughs> Yeah, oh, I thought that was like, wow, that was fast. <laughs> that was fast, and it's. But even then, had that been set like two or three days apart in the script, there are some shows where they'll have like you know the cute little character moments. In Star Trek: The Next Generation, they called it pillar filler, because when an episode was running short on time, Michael Pillar would step in and write a character moment between two characters at some point to pad out the runtime. There's no pillar filler style stuff here. Everything seems almost natural. If that makes sense, yeah. Yeah, every single scene had a purpose. Either here's another red herring for you, or here's a piece of actual evidence. Yeah. Like meeting the killer halfway through, I guess, is something like that. Yeah. I also like the fact that with this one, when there's other people around, it's not like some other shows where, you know, you'll see Holmes and Watson where Holmes figures something out, but he's not sharing it with Watson and we're just following him around. Or Monk would do that. A lot of shows do that. Here, Jessica Fletcher is discussing everything she knows with her fan club, with the sheriff. It's just, no, this is the track. This is where I am so far. Yeah. So it's all out in the open. And she does that on a lot of the episodes. If she's back in Cabot Cove, it'll be she's talking to Seth or the sheriff yeah. there. Not hiding information even to the audience too, I guess. Just letting everyone know. Yeah. Which I like because when I watch Perot, they sometimes hide things. He'll hide things that they don't <laughs> disclose until the very end. And you're like, well, if I had known that, I would have figured out who the killer was too. Yeah. And some of that is not, I mean, with Perot, some of that could also be the the TV series reflecting the source material. That's what I think, too. Sometimes the book is always different than the... Yeah, there's a, yeah. actually a pretty stellar example of that in The Murder of Roger Ackroyd. Uh, I don't want to give more spoilers than that, but that's one of my favorite Poirot novels. That's, I get that Christie pulled something off there that I haven't seen anyone else pull out in detective fiction. So what emergency wrote, is it standalone or is it like a book series or anything or is it just this? It was created for television, so okay. it wasn't adapted from yeah. anything. It, I like it though. I do. I really, because it's not overly sexual. It's not overly gory. And there's always that, always different yeah. characters popping up. And the one benefit to having is just like a film series for TV is that all the ideas can be original. They don't have to follow a book kind of thing or follow what like a book author wanted. 
can all do yeah. their own thing. Yeah, it, it's they're setting all their expectations themselves. And they don't have to worry about fans getting upset because it's not the way they would have adapted Exactly, it. which we see in a lot of books that go to movies these days. Yeah, because it, and that's a, a, a tough line to walk because, you know, sometimes you have to make adjustments when you're adapting because what works on the page does not work on film. Was there a lot of adjustments in Lord of the Rings? There were quite a few. They played up a lot of the female characters because Tolkien, his books come across as sexist. Based on Tolkien's personal writings, it seems like he didn't have confidence in his ability to write women, so he just chose to focus on guys. So things like Liv Tyler's character, I think she's on about five pages out of just over a thousand in the books. But in the movies, she's the main character. Yeah, so they, they did yeah. shift some things around, so things that male characters did were done by female characters and things like that. Um, they cut out the Tom Bombadil sequence, which either in, infuriates fans or makes them stand up and cheer. <laughs> yeah. I'm. You got to pick a team. <laughs> yeah, I. Bombadil was because Lord of the Rings is not a standalone novel. There's other novels set in his Middle Earth series. For consistency across that universe, you needed Bombadil. It destroys the pacing of that moment. I think we've touched a nerve here, Nicholas. So, yeah. But you have to do it. I mean, I think, to my mind, one of the stellar examples of this adaptation is Blade Runner. If you read Do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep, it's a great book that is thematically related to the movie, but the plot, there's almost nothing in common, which is good because a, probably about a third of the pages in the novel are Deckard holding two handles on a machine and thinking. <laughs> and it, it's very interesting thought processes, but to do that accurately in a movie, you'd spend a good 45 minutes watching Harrison Ford with two handles with a voiceover narration. Good for a cheap movie. Yeah, but 45 minutes of that is still not conducive <laughs> to the screen. Wouldn't bring people in. So how is it that you were first exposed to the Murder, She Wrote series? For myself, with my mother watching. And then we'd watch it together weekly. And then I think it was the last series, what, 96? Uh, I think, yeah, the last episode probably would have been tail end of 96 because it would. It lasted 11 seasons and started in 84. So it was one of those programs, too, when I was pregnant with, with Nicholas, that I just, when I was having my afternoon, you know, rest, I'd just watch it. And I liked it because it kept my interest, but it wasn't overly loud. I have sound mm -hmm. issues, so I don't like loud shows. And so I liked it because of that. That's a very strange reason, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> For me, it was through you guys, because I've never, ever heard of... Like, some of the actors that I've heard of, I've never heard of the show until you guys introduced me to it. Okay. Yeah, and for me, it was just general obsession with detective shows. Oh, there's another one. Oh, hey, it's the Bedknobs and Broomsticks lady. Yeah. Yeah, because my mom and I, we used to watch Columbo, Matlock, mm -hmm. and then this was one of them at that time came out. Yeah. Well, yeah, Columbo, Matlock, Remington Steele, Scarecrow and Mrs. King, Remington's Jake and the Fat Man, Diagnosis Murder. Yeah. This was pre-L.A. Law, wasn't it? Because that was another uh, kind of... It could have been, I don't know which premiered first, but they spent... Yeah. A, a lot of their run would have overlapped. So uh, one of the things that we like to do is try to figure out if this is a good first episode for new viewers. So does it make sense in isolation, and is it representative of the series? 
So for the first question, I think we should turn to Nick. Does this work as a as a standalone episode? Did it make sense? Yes, it does. Because all the characters are like, it's not like you're watching it and you have to guess like, hey, I haven't watched the first season. What's this person's name, right? Everyone's name is like told. So if you just jump into it, you learn everyone's name. You learn what's going on. You learn some of the backstory. I found it really interesting too because I actually was like trying to figure out who did it from the beginning. And um, I feel like I wasn't like a noob watching it. I actually was able to figure out what was going on while, while I was going through it. So that was a big thing for me. I think not having to know character background is really good for a series that people can just jump that's what it was, yeah. Not having not having to know the backgrounds, right? Because like I didn't have to watch it and say, Oh, I don't know, she was an author. I was like one of the first things I was told, right? So Yeah. And that is well done. Because I mean I would say generally speaking, a lot of detective shows are easy to jump into because really the only recurring characters are the detectives themselves. Yeah. And here, because of the mistaken identity, they start off by telling you who Jessica Fletcher is, and oh, by the way, it's not this woman, and now here's the real one. Yeah. Yeah, it was a good episode, because when that first started, I didn't realize it was going to take that turn that it did. Same. I had, I, if I was watching it, and it stopped right there, I would have thought Marge was Fletcher. That's honestly what I would have thought, right? But yeah. it gives a whole new twist to it once the real person comes in. Okay. All right, and then the other thing we look at for whether or not it makes a good first episode is, is it actually representing the series as a whole? So if this is your first episode, do you have reasonable expectations when you tune in and watch others? And that one may be tough for Nick to judge, not having seen any others. That's what it is um, to you. I think so. Yeah. I think it is. Yeah. It's... Well, the one thing for me, though, is like setting standards for other episodes. I'm worried like, if I were to go watch the one that's rated the 6.7 or whatever, I might, if I go from this to just jumping into watching that, I'd probably kind of uh, disappoint me a little bit because I'm sure not every episode is like this but I think it sets my standards higher for every episode to have have watching this one so actually every episode is very similar to that it's very similar yeah this like I said it's a pretty low standard deviation on the scores too it's pretty consistent yeah pretty pretty standard does it get pretty old if you watch them from beginning to end like would you get bored a couple seasons through that they're all the same they can be. They did change showrunners to try and change it up a little bit. They didn't change the formula so much as change sort of the layout. So early on, she spent all her time in Cabot Cove, yeah, which was this little main town. I think in the pilot, they established the population as just over 200. It didn't take long to move her out of there because they realized by the end of the first season, this is now the per capita murder capital of the United States. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, the whole town's dead in the season, right? <laughs> yeah. So uh, when J. Michael Straczynski creator of Babylon 5. Um, he was the one who adapted the real Ghostbusters based on the movie into the cartoon. He was showrunner on He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. He did Captain Power and the Soldiers of the Future. He had way more influence on in my childhood than I realized until I started reading credits. <laughs> uh, he was showrunner on this series in seasons 8 and 9. And that's when they established that, I think it was Jessica's nephew, was in New York and needed something. So she spent a lot of time in New York, which doesn't really have an impact on the statistics. Right? You can kill off 70 people in New York, and it doesn't have a big impact on the numbers, as opposed to killing off a third of the population of Cabot Cove in the course of a year. Population slowly got slower, lower and lower. Right. Uh, so then from here we go to a part of the podcast that I've shamelessly stolen from Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Are there any are there any messages, morals, and meanings and takeaways from this episode? Any social messages they're trying to convey? I don't think so. 
And I don't think in any of the episodes that I can clearly remember that there was ever a deeper meaning to it. Yeah, it it doesn't seem to be a social message show. It seems like Angela Lansbury was trying to make something for pure entertainment. So you get some just, you know, the karma. Sometimes bad things happen to bad people. They, they'll always catch whoever did it. But I think that was just more for giving the entertainment value of a happy ending. Though I have to say, in some of them, it seemed to be if people got greedy, you mm-hmm. never got the money in the end. You yeah. ended up in jail or dead. Yeah, it's the whoever's responsible for the crime doesn't usually reap the rewards they were trying to reap from that crime. So. I think that's the only mid-level deep meaning we can get. Yeah. yeah. For me, just from this episode, from the cell I've watched, I guess the one that I can pull from this is be careful who you're friends with. <laughs> Make sure the yeah. detective isn't in town. Mind you, actually, if you want to go back to like the 50s thing that we were talking about where the promiscuous woman always got knocked off, was she was having an affair. And she ended up yeah. Yeah. So there is the karma. And yeah. With the exception of Marge. So a lot of times the first victim isn't innocent, like Marge yes. was this time. Yeah. Yeah. But if it is an episode where the body count keeps rising, it's rarely an innocent yeah. that's yeah. The, the one being added to the body count. Or if it is, it's like Marge's death here, where it's just, oh, you know, they saw the wrong thing at the wrong time. Yeah, but there was no like, social deep meaning. No. No, not really. All right, so I guess uh, the next part is more for Don and I. Why do we think this episode was chosen as the best of the series? Because of the humor of the fan, fan club. They added that little bit of humor that, that you weren't always expecting in a murder she wrote, but there was, it was there. It's, yeah, it, it was a bit of a change, and it gave us something different, but it didn't feel out of place. Exactly. It didn't feel out of place, and that's a huge part of it. You didn't feel like you're suddenly swapped into a different show. Yeah. Yeah, it's, I, I would agree that that's, that's sort of the element that, that nudged just a bit ahead of the rest. So I think that's about it. So uh, next week, or two weeks from now, if things go as planned at the time of this recording, we're going to be looking at the best episode of the 2003 Battlestar Galactica reboot. So that's Season 4, Episode 10, Revelations. So, uh, Nick and Don, thanks for joining me and coming in to talk about this. Thank you for having us, and it was good to catch up. Thank you for having me. I like learning and watching some new shows, and it was interesting doing this, and hopefully I'm on some uh, ones down the road. Thank you. Thank you, and to the listeners, thank you for listening.